Welcome back. Welcome back. Jibbity click. Uh, welcome back to the Getting Close with Mike Marback podcast. I am your host, Mike Marback. Today is a special day in the life of Mike Marback. Uh, today is the day that I have designated to observe the birthday, or name day, if you will, of Arya, my cat. Uh, if my calculations are correct, if my calculations are correct, uh, this is her one-year birthday. She is now one years old. One is it one years old? One year old. She's now one year old. I don't know that I've ever talked about it on the air. On the air, and we're back uh, on the air before. But Arya is a rescue kitty. Uh, she was saved by. She was saved from a life on the streets by uh, uh, an improviser in Philadelphia, a performer. Uh, by the name of Kate Banford. Uh, she was... Uh, I'm going to screw up this story, so the details of it may have to be corrected. Aria, she's getting... She knows she's being talked about. Uh, was found in the uh, underside of a car. Uh, Aria's mom had... Cover your ears. Aria's mom had died, and uh, Aria, I guess, had to fend for herself. Don't know exactly the full details of it. Long story short, they posted a picture of Aria on Facebook, and I had her that night. So, it's now one year. This cat can sit, can roll over, can lay down, can shake hands, and she's almost ready to uh, start turning around on command. She'll, like, spin around. Uh, So she's pretty great, is what I'm getting at. So, today is her birthday. Happy birthday, Aria. I have another bit of pretty awesome news. Uh, as you've been hearing about, and as you may have seen around uh, on the interwebs, uh, Greg Sestero, who played Mark in the fantastically terrible film The Room, uh, will be in town. He's going to be at the Philomoca on Friday, November 8th, he's it's a book tour where he is uh, just kind of promoting his book. He wrote a book about the room called The Disaster Artist, which I just bought finally today. Uh, I don't Not finally. It's only been out for a couple weeks. Uh, I don't know why I'm getting on my own case about that. Cut myself some slack. Jeez. Uh, but he will be in town promoting his book, and the Philomoke is doing this awesome thing where they are allowing people to do script readings with with Greg. Uh, so you, you can email them and pick a scene that you want to reenact with him. I'm guessing he's going to play Mark in all the scenes. I don't see him playing Johnny. Uh, but I'm going to be doing one of those with uh, Mike Butler, friend of the podcast, Mike Butler. Uh, so that's pretty awesome. I'm going to be playing the psychologist, Peter. Psychologist. Uh, Peter in that, uh, who is another one of the characters that just kind of shows up and disappears. He also is not very good at playing football in a tuxedo, as we learn. So, that's one of his many downfalls. But, uh, yeah, so I get to uh, get the book signed, I get to do a script reading, and I got an email yesterday from Mr. Greg Sestero saying that he would be down to do a Getting Close episode, so it looks as though I will be getting close with Johnny's best friend, Mark also known as Greg Sestero. And I'm pretty excited about that because this, um, if you know me, and some of you, I I would think, do, I love this movie. Uh, I talk about it often, and I show it to people uh, whenever the opportunity arises. It's pretty great. Ooh, I should get the DVD signed as well. Oh, I should buy the Blu-ray. I should get everything signed. Anyway... That's pretty awesome. I'm very excited about it. Another thing I'm excited about is finally getting this episode on the air. On the air. Uh, on the interwebs. Inter- Stop saying interwebs. That's dumb. Uh, on the internet. Uh, online. There we go. I don't even know if that sounds right. Whatever. This episode is Scott Adsit. Scott Adsit has done so much. Uh, he has been in uh, Moral Oral. He, he had... Uh, large, large part in that um, on the you know Cartoon Network, 
He, of course, was in 30 Rock. Now, if you heard of that, a little show called 30 Rock. Bam. Um, and he did Mr. Show with Bob and Dave. And he also does guest spots on a whole bunch of different things. He uh, was in town during Duo Fests to do a show with Jet Eveleth, whose episode has already been posted a while back. And uh, we talk about comedy, we talk about his life in comedy, uh, acting and improv and how the two of them go together and are not mutually exclusive. A whole bunch of different stuff. We also talked Game of Thrones for a little while, which uh, I cut out of this podcast and put in its own episode of Stark Raven Mad. So if you're wondering why the podcast ends abruptly, he doesn't storm out of the room. I actually did cut this, cut the end of this podcast off. So there's that. That's all I really got to say. He's got a lot of great things to say, so let's get to him. Please listen as I get close with Scott Adsit. Okay. Well, I want to try to avoid a lot of what they go over. Okay. Uh... And try to keep this more about improv. Good. And just the philosophy of improv and your particular thoughts on it. And, I mean, start with some stuff that goes into how you got into comedy and improv and stuff like that. But mostly just, I mean, I really wanted to be more of theory mm-hmm. and okay. your philosophies on it. And then probably some Game of Thrones. Uh, <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, thank you for, uh, for giving me the time. Like I said, I'm sure you get requests like this each time you go somewhere. So I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So if you could, tell me a quick bit about how you got started in comedy, um, performing. Well, my parents raised me in Chicago, just outside in Northbrook. Okay. And uh, they, a couple of times in my youth, took me down to see Second City. And I remember really distinctly sitting pretty much in the front row and watching Tim Kazarinski and George Wendt and Mary Gross yeah. and Bruce Jarko and these great performers um, being really funny and, and doing a bunch of different characters and um, essentially creating something out of nothing and, and you know, having it seem more uh, immediate and funny than anything on TV. Yeah. And uh, it just seemed like this great magic uh, that was being performed in front of me. So I was really enamored with it. It didn't seem like anything I could ever do. And then... Um, I started acting in high school, and I was very lucky because my high school had a, a good theater program, and it wasn't a theater school, but it had a really big uh, facility, the 1,500-seat Center for the Performing Arts. Wow, and that's a high school? Yeah. 1,500 seats? Yeah, wow. it's crazy. Uh, it's the best theater in the, on the north side, um, and... Uh, the guy who ran it was a guy named uh, Pat Murphy... And he ran it for many years, and I think he'd been there about 10 or 12 years when I got there. Uh, and he had established an improv troupe maybe four or five years before I got there called uh, The Immediate Conception, which is a great name. Yeah. And uh, You want that with an improv. Yeah. With an improv team name. You want something a little punny. Yeah. Uh, but... <laughs> This, uh, that one, I, that one, I don't know. Maybe it's because the first one I ever heard, but I, that one still stands out as the best improv group name I've ever heard. Um, and we, I eventually was in that group and learned improv with Murphy um, and that group of students. And we would perform at assemblies and stuff and actually get to be kind of incisive and, and biting about Incisive and biting is the same thing. Uh, about school policy and about the social mores and, and uh, kind of the accepted dogma of the school and make fun of it and make fun yeah. of the, the, the deans by name, you know, and, and the way they behave. Yeah. And, uh, and that was really a revelation for me, and I thought, this is a good job. Yeah. Did this fit your uh, personality... As others saw it, as far as uh, performing, because I know with me, whenever I when, when I was in high school or college, even, and people said, "What, what do you do?" I was like, "Oh, I, I've done stand up. I do this." And I'm like, "I can't really see." <laughs> um, I don't know. I think I was always kind of in the back of the room, making fun of everything. So I don't think it surprised anybody. I was not a shy guy. Yeah. Um, I may have developed that over the years. I may be shyer now than I was. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, my I, I was I was always a voice in the room, yeah. um, and I would do whatever I could in high school to to stop what it was going on and, and perform in class or whatever. Uh, so then I I went to uh, film school at Columbia College. And uh, they have a, an acting program there, too. And I just went and did some acting because I thought, mm. I enjoy this, but I want to be a filmmaker. Yeah. And I eventually was just in the acting program, and the film had gone away. And there were teachers at Columbia who also taught at Second City. And suddenly that opened up to me. And I went and took classes at Second City and uh, eventually you know, got hired by them and made money at it. Which is a rare thing. Yeah, yeah, it um, is. yeah. So, I mean, I I always thought I would be an actor. Apart from that brief journey into filmmaking, um, I never expected to be a comedian. I don't consider myself a comedian. Right. Um, but you know, I kind of get categorized that way because of Second City, I think, and because I do a lot of comedy on film. Sure. Um, but I've done, you know, I, hopefully I've done a, a great uh, variety of things on stage. Okay. Uh, going into, so you've done Second City, did the main stage there. Who was, uh, I know some of this, um, but a lot of people that are going to listen to this, especially in Philly, probably don't. Uh, who was on the casts when you were there? Um, well, let's see. Um, I, I toured and then I wrote shows um, on the stages. And the people I worked with, if I can remember in order here, uh, Nia Vardalis yeah. and her husband Ian Gomez, who are both you know working actors, yeah. of course. And um, let's see: uh, Adam McKay, Rachel Dratch, John Glazer, Kevin Dorf, Jenna Jolovitz, uh, the late Jim Zulovic, um, uh, Stephen Colbert, uh, Carell. Um, and uh, Amy Sedaris and uh, Tina Fey and uh, boy that's all I can think of right now that's enough that is a hell of a cast <laughs> well that's several casts yeah sure uh, damn uh, when did you meet did you meet Tina Fey at at Second City, yeah. At Second City. Okay. I remember the day. She came in, she replaced John Glazer in our cast. And uh, she was in a big parka. Pretty much hidden. She was in this huge, hooded, furry hooded parka. Uh, and she had big, you know, like B-girl hide-behind reading glasses. And, uh, and she was very kind of quiet and mousy and, and, um, and, you know, respectful. She was the new girl and she was kind of quiet at first. And then she, you know, very soon... Uh, proved how how brilliant she is. You know, mm-hmm. she she was humble, but but the smartest one in the room. You know, mm-hmm. did they still do uh, improv sets after the shows? When yeah, you did always. It? Yeah. yeah. Uh, is there anything that happened during those that was particularly fun or? No, it's all a blur. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, I'm sure. The, it all. I mean, the night seats eight, eight shows a week and and. Uh, Six of those? Five of those have improv sets after them. Um, and they all kind of seem like the same night. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, there were there were incidences like where drunks came up on stage, and I think Tina escorted one off. She's like, one woman just stormed the stage drunk, and they started talking to us in like the second scene of the show. She was already plastered, and she walked <laughs> up and just joined the scene. And I was all set to, to incorporate her into it, you know, because yeah. we had been running the show for a, a month or two, and I was itching to have something new happen. And uh, so I was all set to, you know, let her be a character, at least for that scene. Yes. But I think Tina did, doesn't brook that kind of behavior, so she uh, escorted the woman off into the wings, and the woman immediately fell down the little three-step stairway right. off stage and onto a pile of costumes luckily but it sounded like she really hit the deck Jeez. <laughs> yeah. so as Tina says it, it looked like she just walked the woman off stage and rolled her <laughs> you know uh, 
<laughs> uh, and there's a, a night I remember uh, I was in a impish mood and I went off and got a, a fire extinguisher and brought it on stage like I'm Harpo Marx or something <laughs> and started firing it off and I thought it was really funny and uh, it was it suited the scene whatever was happening sure. however it was uh, and I thought it was one of those vapor ones <laughs> but it was a chemical one oh god and so I sprayed this kind of globular uh, almost microscopic like plastic coating over everything the piano got on the piano it got over people's oh, clothes into people's lungs I could have killed people um, and there was no fire so it wasn't like I was a hero okay. uh, and, and Second City had to pick up some dry cleaning bills for sure and, and also wow. I think we had to replace the piano oh god <laughs> alright well, it fit the scene it got a laugh <laughs> until people realized they couldn't breathe yeah and in the end that's what matters. I'm yeah. sure. uh, there's one story I do want to ask you, if you, if you don't mind telling, because I particularly enjoy it, and I've heard it on another podcast, and that's the one of you guys kind of doing something a little, uh, I guess, experimental, a little pushing pushing the edge a little bit with uh, bringing the television out. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, we were writing a show called Pinata Full of Bees, um, and it was a total break from kind of the format and structure of a normal Second City show. We wanted to do something that was just different. Um, and so it was me, Adam McKay, John Glazer, um, Jenna Jolovitz, Rachel Dratch. Is that everybody? And, uh, and so we were just looking for new ways to entice the audience and, and or confuse them or just be something other than just funny. Um, and see if we could elicit different emotions, and then what do we do with that? So, uh, who was it? Oh, I don't remember who it was. It might have been the director, Tom Janis, uh, who came up with the idea, or maybe it was McKay, to go out and tell the audience during the improv set, after the show was over, and we were doing just improv, uh, going out and stopping the show and telling them that the president, Clinton had been shot, and we don't know anything else right now. So I think, you know, half the cast was against it, uh, dead set against it, uh, and I was I was into it, and uh, I thought, all right, let's see what happens. So I volunteered to be the one to go out and, and do this, and I, and I went out and, and I think I interrupted a scene that was going on, um, and like went over and whispered in Jenna's ear and whispered in Rachel's ear, and they did a wonderful job of looking like two actresses who just were whispered to that the president had been shot and were going to stop the show. So they kind of like uh, blanched a little bit and went off stage yeah. in a very subtle way. And uh, I walked down center and I said, uh, "We're going to uh, we're going to stop the show. The, we've just." heard word that the president has been shot and uh, we don't have any details at this time but we're just we thought it was inappropriate to keep going so uh, we're gonna uh, set up monitors there are TVs out in the lobby you're welcome to go out there uh, we're gonna put a TV on stage here if you want to stay in your seat and watch uh, but we're not gonna we're not going to do any more comedy because it's just... And I, and I did it in such a way that I actually started tearing up and it was... It, I, I think I did a... Re it's one of my finest acting moments because uh, I almost believed it. And it was a very solemn moment. There's a... There's a Scott, Scott Allman, who I didn't name, Scott Allman said... Uh, he's in the cast. He said that at that moment you could hear a mouse shit. It was so quiet. And... How did it go? I guess I, I just I said I said uh, we're just going to set up a TV and stay here if you like or go home whatever. So then Adam rolls out a, t a cart with a TV on it and a like a VCR cart, you know. Mm -hmm. And I turn it on and Adam and I stand there and it kind of comes to life and there's uh, on the, on the screen is not CNN but um, sports bloopers <laughs> uh, and there's some like an, it's. A baseball something or other 
and uh, I, you know, that comes up, and I say to the audience, sorry about that, and I go to change the channel, and Adam goes, no, no, wait, wait, wait. And then we both watched this guy get hit in the crotch with a bat or something, and we both laughed. And then we, we, I kind of reach for the dial again, but then it looks like another blooper's coming up, so I just wait, and we watch the next one, and we laugh a little harder. And then eventually we just kind of sit down and watch the bloopers, and then, and then the cast filters out to come watch the coverage or find out what's going on, and they get entranced by this, and they sit down. And so eventually it's the cast of the show they just watched with their back to the audience <laughs> laughing at sports bloopers. And the audience is confused and, and angry. And I think at one point, Adam turns around eventually and says, uh, People love sports bloopers! <laughs> and we just go back to watching. And half the audience got it and then thought it was funny. Uh, and half the audience was really angry. Yeah. And, because, I mean, that's that's just fucking with people. That's yeah. not right. comedy. Sure. Uh, and we didn't, we didn't like, engage them a, a, to point out how frivolous they are. We just, we just you know, pulled the rug out. Mm. It was, not, it was, it, the, and the problem was we, we had a hypothesis, well, we, what was it? What do I say? Uh, we had an experiment with no hypothesis. Mm-hmm. We didn't say, if this happens, we think this will happen. We just said, let's see what happens. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, I enjoyed it. <laughs> I didn't mind, you know, fucking with the audience like that. Sure. Um, and I think we got letters and we got you know phone calls and stuff like that, and that didn't bother us that much because it was kind of what we were going for. But we didn't know what we were, all, we were thinking. We were radical, you know, mm-hmm. and we were just assholes. <laughs> uh, but, but it was fun. Uh, we never did it again, and uh, and you know the half of the, of the cast that said this is going to be a big mistake. We're very proud to say this was a big mistake. Uh, yeah, I've heard that story before, and it doesn't get old for me. Uh, I can imagine having been there, either as an audience member or part of the cast, mm. just being part of that. That's pretty ridiculous. Uh, like I said, I do want to try to avoid a lot of the stuff that's been covered in other podcasts, um, so a lot of the biographical stuff. Um, but I do want to talk about 30 Rock, mm-hmm. just for a bit. Uh, how did, how did you come to get on that show? I'm guessing Tina Fey had... Yeah, she called me, uh, the year before and said, I'm developing a a TV show and I want you to be a part of it. Would you be available on this date or this time? Uh, and I said, of course. She had left Second City to write for SNL and I think within a few years became head writer. And by the time we made the pilot, you know, uh, we had not worked together in years uh, but we remained friends and uh, I guess she just had me in mind for this role of Pete um, and so it was just I think it was maybe like six or eight months after that phone call she said you know we're gonna make a pilot but you need to audition so uh, I auditioned in California and I made the Call back, and I went to um, to New York. Up to it was very exciting to go to uh, Thirty Rockefeller Plaza and get into a little room, and, and I auditioned with two other really, really good actors that I really respect and know, and um, and so I just thought, well, I know she called me about this, and she has me in mind for this, but I don't know if I'm going to stack up against these two. Um, but it worked out, and I think probably Tina. Uh, championed me. I think the other two guys are, were better known than me um, to the network, and I think she probably said I would. I, I would just like him in there. So, you know, I, I she never said that, but I, that's what I assume because I wouldn't choose me. Um, but you know, I think I think she wanted friendly faces around, yeah. and she trusted me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so that was that. We just made the pilot, and we waited and waited a couple months to see if it would go. Yeah. And then it went up uh, at the same time as... Uh, Studio 60. Studio 60, yeah. yeah. Which I watched. I enjoyed the show. Did you? I did. Um, not from what Tina says, they, they really did not understand how a TV show like that is run and yeah. works, and the backstage goings-on yeah. had really very little to do with what mm. the script said. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the show seemed like it was trying to say things. Well, uh, in my is... opinion, and I'm not n- knocking the idea, but I, I think Aaron Sorkin saw SNL as a great institution and saw that it had stumbled yeah. and wanted to fix it and wanted to show Lorne <laughs> how to do it. Yeah. And the problem is, you know, Sorkin had never done it. He doesn't know how to do it. And he, he has an outsider's perspective of what that show can be and, and how. And just like the West Wing was kind of a fantasy White House, uh, this was his fantasy of what SNL would be like. And it was more like the West Wing than SNL. Yeah. Um, I mean, they would have pitch meetings and writers' meetings where nobody laughs. <laughs> and a writers' meeting is full of laughter, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, did you do anything with SNL? Uh, no, I never have. No? no I auditioned. Or anything? No, I haven't. Okay. But I auditioned back in, like, 95. I lost that job to Will Ferrell. So I've heard I don't it. feel too yeah. bad. <laughs> okay. Uh, jumping back to some improv stuff, uh, what, if any, experience, and I'm really not sure, I'm not just throwing this question out there knowing the answer, uh, experience you have at I.O.? Um... Well, I was never a student of Dell's. I was never a student of Sharna's. I was uh, always just a guest over there because I went to Second City right out of college and did my training there. And a lot of people go used to go to I.O. and then go to Second City. Yeah. Um, I didn't. I didn't take that step. And so all those I.O. people actually I met when there was a detente between the two theaters, and and Second City started hiring. I.O. people, yeah, which was a great move, um, because it did change Second City's quality, I think. It, I think it expanded it. Um, if they weren't getting people from I.O. Uh, or, you know, wherever, where, where, were, where were the cast coming from at that time? I, it's just the theater community okay. and, and, uh, and uh, unincorporated improv groups. Okay. Um, and, I guess, schools. Um... But there was a great influx of talent in like ninety two or three, yeah. uh, with Adam McKay and, and uh, Brian Stack, mm-hmm. and David Keckner and Kevin Dorf, and just all these brilliant people um, out of I.O. Yeah. So I, you know, I would go in and sit in on the Armando Diaz experience um, on my nights off on Monday, um, and I would sit in with various groups here and there. But I was pretty busy. So. Never did a team. No, what about? I was never officially anything. <laughs> just, at IO. Really, just a guest. Yeah, and then when I moved to LA, I started doing shows uh, at their space there. Um, I did a long run with, uh, well, I did a sporadic run with Pasquazi. Oh wow! At and Pasquazi. Yeah. Whenever we were in the same town, so it would be like Chicago and LA. We would do these runs. Um, Is that prior to TJ? Yeah, and they, okay, yeah. I yeah. was the first TJ. Yeah, I like Dick York. <laughs> uh, and I did a bunch of two-person shows there. Actually, I did um, a two-person show with Sue Gillen, with uh, Sarah G, with Bob Dassey, with Tammy Sager. Um, I was a whore, and I loved it. It was it was the best work I'd ever done. I think. What about uh, with the Annoyance Theater? Anything there? Oh, anything official? No. I've seen you perform there. I've done like Messing with a Friend. Yeah. And um, I'm sure I've done other shows there over the over the years, but not very often. I never did a, a proper Annoyance show, no. Okay. I saw one a few years ago. It might have been around Thanksgiving. Uh, that I'm pretty sure had you, TJ, Mick Napier, uh, Susan... And somebody else, which I can't remember. I can't remember who else it would have been. At the Annoyance stage? Yeah. Really terrible. I can't remember yeah. that. Uh, well, for me, I, I would not forget something. <laughs> but those, all those faces. Um, 
I don't know. I can't remember. I don't remember anything on stage. <clears throat> it's very seldom I'll remember a bit or or uh, some or, or unless it's I'll remember other people's really brilliant initiations yeah. and, and connections. That's what I, I talked to Jet yesterday. Uh, and she was kind of saying the same thing when she's uh, <coughs> when she's on on stage, gets off stage. It's very hard to remember some of those things, but she remembers when she was watching people mm-hmm. uh, and specific scenes that people were doing. Yeah. Uh, when she was kind of going through the program and, you know. Yeah, you get inspired all the time. Yeah. Still, I mean, I've been doing this a long time and I still will watch Jet uh, make a connection with you know, seamlessly yeah. and and catch up with her, you know. Yeah. And and I'll note that. It happened last night where without stating it verbally, we knew that this was a callback and, uh, and that... X had advanced to Y in the time since the initial, yeah. and um, and the audience and I caught up with her, and then the audience caught up with us, and they got a big laugh because we didn't spell it out. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and she was talking like the the scene game versus the the hidden hidden game, and I guess that's maybe more the, the hidden mm. what she was referring to. Uh, so. Y- y- what, what about as far as teaching goes, as far as teaching improv? When did you start doing that? Um, well, I taught improv back in L.A. to make some money. I, I needed to make a very small amount of money. So <laughs> I taught at I.O. Uh, they're in their first space out there. Um, and I wasn't very good at it. I was just trying to imitate my teacher at Martin DeMott from Chicago. Okay. And he and I are very different. And uh, so... It, Think I, I think I was a little too soft and nice and, and accepting of everything people did and yeah. pointed out why everything is good, <laughs> uh, which works for Marty. It didn't work for me. Um, and I, so then I didn't teach for a while. I, I taught some acting back at Columbia College. I taught uh, acting two, I think it was, for a couple semesters. Um, and then I, other than that, I hadn't taught very much. And I started doing workshops at these festivals. And I enjoy that. That's good. I just, I just um, have them do two-person scenes, and then we, I, I'll coach, or I'll let them do the whole thing, and then we'll do yeah. notes. Um, I enjoy that. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's also inspiring, because I see, I see uh, people doing really good work in class, too. And I say, oh, I should, that's, that's a good thing to steal. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> not not a joke, but like a, yeah. um, you know, a technique. Yeah, sure. Okay. So you find, I mean, you've been doing this a while, uh, that you're still learning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you did Second City, uh, and you had some other, other training here and there. What would you say your, your, your main improv philosophy is? Like, to break it down a little bit, I guess, uh, when you go into a scene... What's the first thing that goes through your head, if anything? Um, well, there's the, the ideal and there's the actual. I think when the actual, uh, I, I want to know immediately where we are and who, if, if, if my partner is establishing who I am mm-hmm. or if, if that's going to be up to me. Um, ideally, I would want to come out and have you know, look at look at her first initiation and have a want to pursue right away. Mm. That doesn't always happen. Yeah, um, you have to kind of know who you are and where you are and all that before you can choose a want. But if if I had my druthers, I would I would want to start with a want and then establish everything else. Okay. Uh, and then it's just like. You know, playing badminton for a while, yeah. and hopefully it turns into contact badminton and then a wrestling match. When you're in a scene, uh, is there any focus? Uh, are you are you looking for anything in particular? Or are you are you doing the, the the trying to find the game thing? Are you trying to make sure that that relationship is the most um, important thing in the scene? I guess I'm looking for for honest reactions that lead to a game. Um, I, I'm not hunting for the game, uh, and quite often I, d- I don't find the game because I don't. Uh, 
but hopefully I'll have some interaction that is at least interesting and has a beginning and a middle and maybe an end. Yeah. Um, I'm looking for a, an opportunity to change. Um, I'm looking f- for a, a character-driven reason for my character to change his mind about something. Uh, something important. And sometimes I'm looking to change my partner's mind about something. And, you know, it's always... It's always fun to be the one who changes. I think we forget that on stage mm-hmm. because we want to stick to our guns, yeah. and and our, we we respect our character so much that we will not let down our side of this argument or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but of course, the the more interesting and dynamic character is the one who changes his mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, let's say you are in a scene, and you're you find that it's about just talking uh you know t- talking head scene mm-hmm. uh just about things that aren't necessarily happening right there does that bother you it gets me in my head yeah if, then i feel like uh a student or a teacher uh who's thinking about the rules of improv cuz mm-hmm. you know if i find myself telling a story or talking about someone who's done on stage yeah then i just get into my head and and try to you know, uh, steer, steer off the rocks and back on the road, um, and bring, if, if my partner's talking about the past, I try to actually sometimes verbally just bring it into the present mm-hmm. and say, I don't want to talk about the past. Yeah. <laughs> it's really kind of blatant. Uh, uh, or, you know, uh, if that happens, uh, if, I did, a, I did a show at, back in the 90s, I think, um, where any time, I think it was, was it Lois Caz? I think it was. A show called Lois Caz with a bunch of the I.O. people at Second City. And any time, I think there, there was a rule that any time someone is mentioned off stage or something in the past, you have to cut to it. Okay. Uh, so I incorporate that sometimes. Yeah. If If I'm talking about my dead father then we cut to my dead father rather than just tell stories okay that's good I like that um so if you are you use a phrase in your head which you use in improv all the time um and I guess it's really circumstantial but what do you think causes that for people and how do you getting in your head yeah um I think it's when you're observing the scene as a director and wanting to fix it. Okay. Um, and my teacher, Marty DeMott, had a lesson which was allow the scene to fail for lack of what you're doing. Which I, essentially, I think, means that it's not your responsibility to fix the scene. Yeah. Um, you've got to allow it to happen organically and... Uh, and trust your scene partners to write the ship with you. Um, I guess, what causes it? Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> this is a good bit of editing right now. <laughs> um, I think it's it's when you're you're afraid that the scene is going to fail, and so you have to find a reason to uh, fix it and make it better. And in that, you just go file go through your file effects in your head looking for solutions, yeah. um, or wishing that your partner would do X so that you could do Y. Yeah. And uh, and sometimes. You know, you can't help getting in your head. You have yeah. to. You have to steer the ship at some point. Yeah. Um, because if you didn't, then it's just you know who. <laughs> rah, 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 rah. You know, who yeah. knows what you're watching? If you're not paying attention, as you got to be a director in your head a little bit. Um, but it's when I think it becomes a problem when you're looking for a solution. Yeah. And you, it, it's just essentially when you stop listening. Okay. Uh, 
I just lost my train of thought here. Um, oh, yeah. You, from from my experience uh, watching, I've seen at least four or five times now, different places, uh, you don't seem to be too much of a goofy character kind of person. Uh, at least on the outside. I'm sure there's a lot going on inside. Mm. Uh, is that something you... Is that just like a comfort zone? Or is that just how you... Just the style that you tend to play? It might be just that I didn't warm up enough. <laughs> um, uh, I, I tend to shy away from huge over-the-top characters because they're quite often not very honest. Um, but if the scene has been established as a big, goofy scene, then yeah, I'm right there. Um it's not my it's not my instinct to start there. Yeah. Uh, because I I think it seems a little desperate at the top of the scene to suddenly you know you hunch over and squint an eye and talk out of the side of your mouth really loudly uh, or whatever. Um, I should do it more actually. Um, I used to. I I think as I get older, I'm a little lazier, and uh, I'll I'll find honesty in. Uh, <laughs> being emotionally reserved. Yeah, Jet's pretty great at <coughs> doing kind of goofy characters, but they're all grounded. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you find that affecting you at all, or do you just play off of that? Well, with Jet, you know, she she will play characters who are uh, who who could spin off into f- flights of fancy and fantasy any any point and so I kind of feel a responsibility to yeah. kind of play it straighter sure. and and give her something to play against because um, if, you, if you have two crazy characters on stage it might it, it'll be a, a formless scene right um, so you know when that happens I, I I try to serve the scene and uh, if if she's playing someone who will spin off like a dervish and, and you know, be weird or melt or whatever she does, I've got to be, I've got to give structure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how much of, how much would you say the audience influences the, the way that you play or the scene taking place or the show overall? How much of a part do they play in that for you? Um... Surprisingly little. I mean, I have a good relationship with the audience as a concept. I really, I I kind of, by this time, understand, if I think of them as one thing, uh, what they like, what, what I'm, how they relate to me, and what they like to see from me, um, and what will surprise them. Um, but... I mean, I'll enjoy the show more if I know the audience is really enjoying it, if they're really rapt or if they're really laughing. Um, but really, I'm there with my partner, and we're the two of us are there for the audience. But while I'm on stage, it's pretty much how can I help my partner, and then and then you know how can I make my partner look good, and then I can enjoy that with the audience, yeah. watching her be good. So, um, when when they're when they're not enjoying it, I think it, it becomes a little sweaty, and and maybe uh, it'll change my energy into something a little different in, in trying to like you know uh, throw different things at them to find their speed. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's going well, it's, you know. I'm just there with my partner. Yeah. How do you deal with uh, what you might perceive to be a uh, quote-unquote bad show? How do I perceive it? Uh, how, how do you deal with what you might perceive to be a bad oh. show? Um, <laughs> well, I'm the hardest critic of myself, so I'll, I'll come off and, and say to a friend, you know, I'm sorry that you saw that one. <laughs> and I'll say, what are you talking about? Um, and and a piece of me is saying, I know, I know, that they're they're being nice, all right. A piece of me knows that they're lying, and that was a terrible show, 
and and they are just trying to make me feel good. And then another piece of me knows that I'm I'm pretty good, and generally there are worse shows out there than the one they just saw. Yeah. Um, but I always want to be my best, and I always want my friends to see um, my best work. And I always want an audience who's never seen me before to see my best work. Yeah. And so when I get off stage and I felt like it was just a dead ball, uh, I, I, feel pretty, I feel pretty bad. Yeah. And, I, and I used to, I would fret for days over a bad wow. show. Now I let it go in about a half hour because I've had enough good shows that the bad shows don't bother me so much. Um, you say you let it go on for about a half hour. What, how, how does it just... Uh... I pick a part of the show. I, I apologize to my partner. We'll, <laughs> we'll, like John Lutz and I do a show, and if we felt we did a bad show, you know, we'll text each other for about an hour after the show, just back and forth, saying, sorry about that thing. Uh, and then complimenting. You know, I'm sorry I did that. You were, when you did this, it was fantastic. Yeah. Um, and we just kind of... I lament and, and uh, go back over the show and then try to make it a learning experience. Um, quite often it's the same old habits um, that led to it being a bad show. But I, I don't let it bother me much anymore. I feel bad for the audience. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, how was your last night? It was good. We had a good time. Good. Yeah. There were no... I don't think there were any real lulls. Um, and... Uh, and we made some connections that were intuitive. Uh, it's always nice when the audience catches up with you. Yeah. It's good to be ahead of your audience, you know? Yeah. If they're ahead of you, then, you know, if you're playing dumb or something, and they're just ahead of you and they're waiting for you to get to it. Yeah. If you're stalling or something like that. So, actually, I think Jet and I talked about that before the show, just saying, uh, let's, let's just play to the top of our intelligence and not ever have a, a character be behind what's happening in the scene yeah. and having to catch up. Uh, have you had a show that the audience clearly enjoyed but you came off stage for some reason or another uh, didn't not quite feeling good about yeah. it? Yeah. What, what, what exactly would you say causes that? And again, that's probably some circumstantial... It's Yeah, I, I couldn't give you a specific but I know the emotion and it's just letting down my partner. It's like, you know, the, he will have an initiation that I didn't pick up on or he had a, a callback and I didn't get who he, who we were mm -hmm. in the callback so I didn't call it back correctly and then he had to, like, adjust. Um, uh, but, the, you know, the, the, the audience wants you to do well and so they're delighted when it doesn't suck you know I think yeah. an improv audience uh, is yeah. a forgiving audience yeah. and it's not like it's not like sketch because sketch the audience knows that this has been written and mm -hmm. and poured over and rewritten and honed to exactly what we see and so they're judgmental about it and you know that wasn't good enough for me but I think improv there's a, a big safety net uh, because the audience knows it's being made up right now. And if you can hit, you know, six out of ten things and make them good, then the audience is ecstatic. Yeah. Uh, if you can hit nine out of ten, then uh, then you're considered a legend. You know? <laughs> so uh, it's, it's a for very forgiving art form, I think. This is a broad question, but what would you say is one of the most important things in improv? <laughs> As a performer. What, just any important thing? Yeah. Um, first thing that comes to mind is something else Marty told me back in the day, which was you have to be interested to be interesting. And people want to watch you. They want to be interested in you. And quite often people think that it's interesting to be disinterested on stage, to have your character uh, not react to things that obviously need to be reacted to. And that's why it's funny, because yeah. I didn't react. And that doesn't get you anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's like life. It's, it's one of those improv things that applies to life as well. You have to be interested to be interesting. And uh, so it's, I think that's really important to be engaged 
on stage as opposed to finding humor, in quotes, in disengaging, which a lot of, I think a lot of newbies do. Yeah. I certainly did. <laughs> but I found that, you know, scenes got to move and move forward and characters have to affect each other. That's what yeah. we're watching. You're right. Uh, you brought it back in a couple times throughout the conversation. Uh, how important do you think that would be to improv? Well, it's all acting, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's just like saying how important is blue to the sky. <laughs> I think it's it's the same thing. Um, you said you don't consider yourself a comedian. You consider yourself just a, like as an improviser, but an actor. Yeah. 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 I'm I'm acting. On, I'm not I'm not looking for a joke generally on stage. Um, that took me a while too. I thought I, I thought I had to find the funny, and quite often I find the funny just comes to you if you're honest, yeah. and and react like a human being. Yeah. Um, it's the human reactions I think that get the laughs, um, especially in like the two person work that we're doing this weekend. Um, and there's lots of ways to get laughs, you know, with rhythms and callbacks and. Mm-hmm. And you know all that, but I think that it, there's got to be an honesty to all of it. it can't be, it can't seem invented? Yeah. And I think that's where acting comes in. Just taking the moment, responding to that, and then responding to that, and then responding to that, and you know, not not. It's like it's how acting or it's how improv in, informs acting is um, being a blank slate emotionally um, and letting things hit you and not knowing how it will make you respond until it makes you respond. And there it is. I told you it would be an abrupt ending. I wasn't lying. I am not a liar. So, I do apologize for that abrupt ending, but that's how it is. Uh, If you would like to hear the continuation of that conversation, for the most part, you can head over to Stark Raven Mad, which is a Game of Thrones podcast. Uh, We haven't had a new one in a while because the show's been off the air, but we do plan on getting back up soon to do the earlier seasons since we started with season three. Anywho, hope you enjoyed the Scott Adsit episode. Um, Yeah, he had a lot of great things to say, and he's such a nice guy, too. So nice uh, to do that, uh, to get close and uh, come down to Philly. I'm sure he'll be back. That's the second time he's been here, so uh, let's go for the third. All right, that's it. Next time on the Getting Close podcast, likely going to be from the room, Greg Sestero. Oh, hi, Mark. You're the expert. Oh, oh, oh.